But there's more to Silent Night than that because you'll see it show up in several carols. You'll see it show up in like a little town of Bethlehem, uh, Oh Holy Night. There's this idea that there was this silence, this profound silence across the entire earth. It was not just talking about how, you know, it's, it's dark and quiet. It's actually talking about this profound silence across the earth, and it gets shattered suddenly when Jesus Christ comes. And that's the idea behind that. And there is this idea that exists in the Protestant church, specifically the Protestant church, where this comes from. And I, w- I want to kind of give you a little bit of church history. I know most of you know this. Uh, but in case you didn't, um, we are a Protestant church uh, because if you're a Christian church, you're one of two things. You're either Catholic or you're Protestant. And by nature, the fact that we're non-Catholic, we are, pro- we are Protestant, right? Uh, and that's kind of how that breaks down. Now, um, we have a lot of things in common with other Protestant churches, but certain things uh, are the reason why we broke away, we being the Protestant church, broke away from Catholicism to begin with. And I want to mention a couple of those today because that's where this profound silence idea sort of comes from. Uh, now, you may have heard of a guy named Martin Luther, and he, he, pe- he uh, put some, uh, called the 95 Thesis, 95, those of you, 95, 90, 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door. And um, two of the main ones, and these are, like, these are like reasons we can't stand the church anymore, were here. Now, this is Latin for scripture only and faith only. And scripture only, for us, is Bible only, says that all you need is the Bible. That's it, in order to have a Christian life. You don't need anything else added to you from the church. Now, uh, churches don't like to think that way, but this was especially a big deal in the Catholic Church because they held a lot of things over their people's heads. And if you got excommunicated, you're going to hell. And he was saying, no, as long as you have the Bible, you have everything you need. And the other thing is faith only, which is faith is the only thing that you need for salvation. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that's it. These two tenets really was the spark of the genesis of the Protestant church. So what the Protestant church believes is that the Bible is all you need. Now, the Catholic church has a catechism that they add to the Bible, and that's why it was such a profound thing when Martin Luther said, no, Bible only, that's it. And what has kind of come out of that as well is the Bible that we have is the Bible we're supposed to have. Sometimes heard it referred to as the inerrant word of God. So the Bible we have is the Bible we're supposed to have. And uh, everything that's in the Bible, we're supposed to have in the Bible. Anything not in the Bible, we are not supposed to have in the Bible. That's kind of sort of a, a teaching of almost all Protestant churches, or at least the basis of them. So in the Bible that we have, we have uh, Old Testament and New Testament. And the Old Testament ends in Malachi. Oh, we didn't change the scripture. Let me do that. This is actually Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So in Malachi, it ends, and it ends with a very ominous verse. It says this, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He's talking about Jesus Christ's birth, you know, this great little thing we celebrate for Christmas. He's calling it a great and dreadful day. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's, you're going to listen to the Messiah, or that's it. It's over. Now, I believe the reason Malachi refers to it as his great and dreadful day, which, of course, we look at this you know, little town of Bethlehem and Sodom, it's a wonderful day, uh, it's because he's writing to Jews. He is a Jew writing to Jews. This is kind of a dreadful day for the Jews. You finally got that working? All right, awesome. The computer's working? That's good news. Let's hope it stays up. 
Um, anyway, so the, the, the thing about that is that, um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, the reason why is because he's a Jew speaking to Jews. And this is kind of a dreadful day for them because this is the day when Jesus arrives when the old covenant ends. You know, this is the sim- sim- symbolic of the old covenant's going to end. And they're going to, he probably, because he's a prophet, he's seeing things. He's probably seeing that the Jews are mostly going to reject the Messiah. And I believe that's why he calls it a terrible day. Because it kind of is a terrible day for Judaism. When Jesus arrives, he kind of you know, declares all that moot because he's giving us a new covenant. And that's why he says that. But anyway, so this is how Malachi ends. And then it picks up again in Matthew 1. And Matthew starts off, says, well, here's what you've missed. But he just goes through the genealogy of Jesus. He's basically tracing Jesus' genealogy to show you that Jesus comes from the line of David because it was prophesied the Messiah would come through the line of David. And that's it. And there is a period between Malachi and Matthew that most scholars put at about 400 years where according to Protestants' Bibles, God says nothing. Meaning there's no prophet, there's no prophecy, there's no written word. There's no priest that was declared by God. There was no judge that spoke for God. God is silent for 400 years. Again, the Catholics don't necessarily believe that because their Apocrypha has stuff in it. The Jews don't either because they have an oral Jewish tradition that talks about things. But in our Bible, the Protestant Bible, the 66 books that you, you have if you own one and that, that you'll find the seat in front of you, those 66 books, there's nothing that happens there. And since there's nothing recorded, we have to say there was nothing there. And this has caused a lot of problem because why did God not speak for 400 years? That's a very long period of time. And we just kind of try to wrap our mind around that. Was that fair? Was that just? Was that good? Was he angry? Why was God silent for 400 years? And there's been a lot of angst over this. Uh, and so when I started kind of doing the background to this, you know, I just kind of praying about it. I had this idea of silent night was, you know, what I'm going to preach on. And I started researching it. I thought, wow, that is profound that God was silent for 400 years. And then I realized, wait a minute, it's not the first time. God has been silent for 400 years before. It appears elsewhere in the Bible. And that's when I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. In fact, he even declares to Abraham when he first comes and gives him the covenant, kind of warns him it's going to happen. He says this in Genesis 15. God said to Abraham, no, for certain. He's just told him that, you know, he's going to be their God and he's going to make them a mighty nation. But he goes on right after that. No, for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Also, I, I like the other phrase of it, strangers in a strange land. I always love that phrase from the you know, King James. Strangers in a strange land, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now, we know that happens, right? Well, for those 400 years, God never speaks to them. The whole time they're in bondage, God never speaks. There's no prophet. There's no prophecy. There's no declaration from the Lord. There is a period of silence for about, and when I say 400 years in both cases, these are kind of rough estimates. We're talking about ancient times. Any of you scholars, don't try to add up genealogy and tell me I missed it by five years. It's a kind of a general term, 400 years, this block of time, right? But basically, from the time Joseph dies to the time Moses is standing in front of the burning bush, which is 80 years into Moses' life, God says nothing that is recorded. Now, we have more information about this period of time than between Malachi and Matthew, so I thought, well, that would kind of be instructive. Let's take a look at where the, the world was right before God went silent the first time. And let's see what happens with his people, who are the Israelites, during the time until uh, he speaks again. So when he speaks to Moses in front of the burning bush. So in order to do that, we have to take a look at Joseph's story. Now, we've done this 
uh, series before. There's a series online. You can go take a look at it. We go through a 10-part series on Joseph's life. I'm going to just hit the high points right now. Uh, so he gets a prophetic dream. When we first seen Joseph, God is literally speaking to him. He's speaking to him through a prophetic dream. Uh, he's a bit of a spoiled rich brat, to be honest with you. He kind of is. Uh, and he's uh, not really good about his brothers because his father outright shows that he loves him best. And uh, his brothers don't like that, and he doesn't seem to care. He kind of flaunts it a little bit. Makes them so mad, they actually beat him up, throw him in a pit, and then sell him into slavery when, uh, when he's out in the field with them. And then he ends up uh, being put in this guy's house named Potiphar, but the Lord is with him, the Bible tells us, and he raises to the top of Potiphar's household. In fact, he goes from a slave who doesn't even speak the language, so he probably would have been a field slave, to raise to the top where Potiphar has put everything under his control and never even looks at what he does anymore in about two years of time. That's incredible. So God brings him all the way to the top. Uh, he comes then to the attention of Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him when he rejects. Don't, don't ever, you know, hell hath no fury is a woman scorned as the saying goes. And so she gets her revenge by framing him for rape that he doesn't commit. So he gets framed for a crime that he doesn't commit and gets thrown into jail. Now, I believe, by the way, the fact that he was thrown into jail tells me that Potiphar believed him. He just couldn't side with him over his wife. The reason being that I think if he really believed he tried to rape his wife, he would have had him killed. And he had him killed in front of the entire household. That's how it was. Potiphar, by the way, was the chief, uh, one, of the, one of the chief bodyguards of Pharaoh. So it's like he had power and he had, he had influence. So he was a political guy, and he definitely would not have wanted this to go unchallenged. And then, he, then the jail he puts him in is kind of a white-collar jail a little bit for political prisoners. So I believe that, Pot I believe that uh, Potiphar knew who was telling the truth, but hey, I can't go against my wife uh, for a slave. So he throws him in jail. So he's wrongly accused and wrongly convicted of a crime, and he's thrown into jail. Okay, so um, I'm going to pick this up now because while he's in there, he meets two people. There are other political prisoners, and they both have a dream. And Joseph says, well, tell me your dreams. You know, God, God gives dreams. Maybe there's an interpretation because they were troubling them. And so he rightly uh, will predict both things that are going to happen in their lives based on dreams because God has revealed it through these dreams. So that happens, and one of them gets killed, and the other one gets put back into Pharaoh's court, the cupbearer. And then what happens after that is two years pass, and Pharaoh has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams in the same night. And it's one of these dreams, I don't know if you've ever had these, you wake up, it's just so vivid, it's troubling. It's like it feels like that was real somehow. Even if the dream didn't make sense, it felt real to you. And so he knew when he woke up for the first one, he goes, well, that's something special there. He goes back to sleep, and he has a second dream, which is different from the first, but had the same feel to it. Now he's troubled, and so he goes and he calls all of his magicians and sorcerers into the palace and says, I, sat, I had two dreams last night. I'm going to tell you, and I want you guys to tell me what they mean. Now, this is not an unusual request. This is part of the Eastern religion. Uh, in Babylon, the Chaldeans were very famous for divination through dream given. These people were scholars. When you hear that people were astrologers, that's what they were. They weren't just, you know, they, they you know, do your little horoscope for the newspaper. That's not what astrology was back then. This was the real deal. They, like, sought the heavens. They sought different divination practices. And one of the common ones was they, they would take a look at the dream, and they'd look for symbolism in the dream, and they had all these books on it, and they'd studied it. And so he gives them these dreams to the best and brightest. He was the most powerful man on earth at the time. Uh, Egypt was the biggest. It was the, it was the leading empire. And so he had the best and brightest surrounding him. And they all went, yeah, we have nothing. You know, we, we, we looked in our books for the symbolism you've given us. We have nothing here. 
And Pharaoh's troubled now, and there's no explanation, and all of his, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men uh, can't help him. I mean, how drunk, by the way, does a king have to be before he puts the horses on a task? I'm not sure. But anyway, they, they can't do anything, and so they, they, uh, they were kind of puzzled. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, oh, wait a minute, I know a guy. <laughs> Turns out, I know a guy. And he starts out by saying, yeah, I probably should start by apologizing because uh, I, I know a guy. Now, this whole time long, Joseph has been in prison. Even after, you know, he helped these guys out and the, the cupbearer goes back, he stays in prison. Now, I want to show you that the entire time that Joseph is in prison, there is one thing that's kept him going. And it's what's kept him going when he was a slave, and it's what's keeping him going now. And the reason that Joseph continually rise to the top is one thing and one thing only. And we're given a glimpse of this when a psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us a story of David, I mean, uh, of Joseph, and the psalmist is telling us things about Joseph that isn't in the book of Genesis, so we know it's inspired by God. And he's actually going to compare Joseph to what will happen to Jesus. But first of all, I want to show you this. Uh, so his path to success, Joseph's path to success, if you want to know how he was able to do that twice, not once, but twice, he rose to the top of the house. He rose to the top of the prison. He did it for one reason. That's it. he stayed devoted to the word of God. He stayed true to the word of God, and that's it. And we know that because the psalmist tells us. So in Psalm 105, the psalmist says this, until the time that his word came to pass. Now, what he's talking about is the prophetic vision that God gave him when he was 17 years old. By this time, he's about 28. So for all those years... Until the time that his prophetic word would come to pass. And the, the, the word used here for word gets weird because we only have one word for word. So I'm going to actually switch that now and show you uh, what it really means in, in the full psalm here. At the tel until the time that his prophetic word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Now that was not Genesis because he doesn't have it yet. Genesis was written by Moses. That won't happen. Joseph was living uh, Genesis. He didn't have it written. What he had was he had commandments written to Abraham. When Abraham got the covenant from God, God talks about in Genesis that he gave him commandments and he gave him statutes. So it was going to be a much smaller version of what Moses will get later, and they believe they, they put him on clay tablets. So that was it. That was all they had. It, was a, it wasn't much, but he'd given them the word. He says, if you're my descendants, you will follow me, and these were you will follow me. It weren't the Ten Commandments, but it was just simple instructions of how you keep me first in your life. Joseph, the psalmist is telling us, stay true to that. Until the time when his prophetic word would come true, all he had was the written word of God, and so he stayed true to that. If you're praying for an answer from God and you don't have the answer yet, what you do in the meantime is you continue to do what you know. And what you know is his word of God. Now, we have much more of it than poor Joseph had. But even what Joseph had, he stayed true to. And that's why God kept raising him up. And we see that. It says the king will send him and release him, and the ruler of the peoples will set him free because he passed the test. What God is saying is, I know you can follow me in the bountiful times. I know that you'll praise me when I exalt you as I'm going to. Will you praise me now, though? Will you continue to do the right thing even when it doesn't seem like it's getting you ahead very far? Will you be true to the word that God has given you before he brings your other word, the prophetic word, to pass? Before my vision comes true for your life, will you be true to what I've told you to do? 
Will you be willing to do that? Joseph's answer was yes. And because Joseph's answer was yes, eventually the wine steward goes, you know what? I remember now when I was there, there was a Hebrew with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. Look where he is. He's not even considered, he's not even considered a prisoner in this guy's eyes. He was, like, he was like next in command to the captain of the bodyguard who was running the prison. That tells me this is a political prison. And we related to him these dreams, and he interpreted our dreams for us, he says. He says, and, th- and each one got a different interpretation, and just as he interpreted, so it happened. I was restored to my office, but the other was hanged. That was the baker. He got hanged. So both dreams were true, and Joseph accurately told them what they meant. In other words, he says, I know a guy. I know a guy who can interpret dreams. I should have told you before when you first mentioned this, but now I remember this guy's there. And Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. They hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. They clean him up. They shave him. They put a fresh cut on. You can't bring you know, a guy from the dungeon in before Pharaoh. And he comes before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says this, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I've heard you have the gift. I heard you had this talent. I heard you had this rare ability to correctly interpret dreams. I want you to see what Joseph says. No, I don't. This is not me. It's not in me. It's not me. I don't have a talent. I don't have a skill. I don't have an ability. I don't have that. But you know what? God will give the true answer to Pharaoh. I can't do it, but I know the one who can. His relationship with the living God is all that matters at this point. And he knows it, right? He's been purified, by the way. He was kind of rough gold lump when he got thrown into all this but man now he's pure he's pure gold because he has learned to just press into the word and follow god he said i'm not going to step forward and claim any of god's glory this is god's working and i can know it but i can tell you what god wouldn't have done this if he didn't want you to know the answer so you go ahead and tell me the dream and god will reveal the answer to you the spirit of the lord will reveal the answer i'm going to show you that even pharaoh recognizes that so i'm just cautioning us because there's times in our lives we try to be spiritual Nothing wrong with that. We want to be spiritual. We should want to be spiritual. We should want to reach out and, and get more of God, right? The Holy Spirit's here, and, and so we are, we are, as C.S. Lewis once put it, says we are not uh, bodies with a soul. We're a soul with a body. You know, we are spiritual first because God created us with a soul. So that's a good thing, but we must make sure in our efforts to be more spiritual, we resist the temptation to be less holy. We cannot grab on to other spiritual things that other people have come up with in order to claim it as God's. We need to recognize when the God says the Spirit does things, God does it through His Spirit. And we don't have the ability, we have the relationship with God. I really want to break that apart because Joseph did not get promoted because of his ability. He got promoted because of his relationship with the living God. And now we know this, we know this for a fact, uh, because uh, he's, going, he's going to be told this by Pharaoh. But before I jump to that, let me break this scene again for a moment. There's one other place in the Bible where we see somebody who also is famous for interpreting dreams. This is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel's half dreams, in fact. But, but he, becomes, he comes to, to our attention in the book of Daniel when he um, is pulled before Nebuchadnezzar to be killed. That's really what happens. Now, he's, been, he's a Jew who's been captured by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And he's one of the wise men, which means he's gone to their college and he's learned things. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's smart. He won't tell anybody the dream. He says, I'm troubled by this dream. I need somebody to tell me what it is and then tell me what it was, what it means. So in other words, I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. First of all, you tell me what the dream was, and then you tell me what it means. That's how I know your interpretation's right. 
Nebuchadnezzar, shrewd little guy. And so everybody said, well, no one could do that. He says, well, I'm going to kill you all then, because what good are you if you can't do this? And so they're actually rounding up the wise men to kill them, and Daniel's getting lumped in with all these Chaldeans. And so as they come in, and the captain of the guard, who's kind of a friend of his, is coming to kill him, and Daniel speaks to him with wisdom and tact. This is a good time for tact, right? Guy's going to sort I'm sorry, Daniel, I really like you a lot, but I have to kill you now. Whoa, 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 let's not be so hasty there. And he asks him, Why? Why are we all being killed? I mean, can I know that before I put my head on the block? And he tells him what happened. And then Daniel went to the king and he says, can I have some time? I'll interpret it for you. I will get you an interpreter. I'll get you what you want. But I want you to see what he does. He goes back and he talks to his friends and they're giving the, um, the Jewish names here. We know, actually know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the famous w- names we know. He goes back and says, we got a problem. We're going to be killed tomorrow if God won't give me this revelation. I need God to give me the revelation. And he goes and takes a nap. I don't know how you do that, by the way. I don't know how. I mean, I've had, I've had deadlines the next day, but I've never had a deadline the next day that's choppy chop if I'm wrong, right? So, but he does. He sits down. He goes, well, I'm going to go to bed. Go. So please, for the mercy of God. So those three stay up all night praying. Please, 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 oh, Lord, give him the interpretation. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to him in a vision. Daniel had no abilities and no talents either. He was just like Joseph, but he had a relationship with the living God. Dream interpretation without the Spirit of the Lord is nothing but divination. And I'm going to encourage you that if you don't, if you can't hear the voice of the Lord, whatever you do here is just noise. Now, this goes back to Joseph's situation because he is, in that he is eventually going to be exalted, not because of skills or talents, but because of a relationship with the living God. But he did not let the noise of the situation ever get in his way. When he was brought before Potiphar and sold to the house, he realized, I need God. And he pressed into God. And he stayed true to God. And when he rose up, he still stayed true to God. And when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, you know what he says to her? How can I do this wicked thing against my God? It's not, oh, what if you get caught? What if, you know, a baby? What if there's a disease? No, no, none of those things. He says, how can I do this against God? He understands that everything he has right now is based on his relationship with God. Sometimes we have to be put in that situation where it's trust God or die. You know? And when you've met people who've been put in a situation where it is trust God or die, they are a different Christian than anybody else you'll meet because they understand. They understand why it's important to stay focused on God. It's like you're on this little tiny narrow tightrope, and I know that if I take my eye off God, I'm falling. And I'm going to keep my eye on God. And then later on, when you get to the platform, guess what those people do? They keep their eye on God. It's working so far. Listen, if keeping your eye on God works when things are bad, it'll work even better when things are plenty. What happens is most Christians take their eye off of God once things are okay. I got it now. My dad used to tell a story about a guy who put all of his money, uh, all of his rent money on a horse. And uh, so he goes there, and he'd been in church earlier, and so he, he gets his little thing, and he's sitting there and says, oh, God, please, let this thing break cleanly from the pack. When this horse takes off, let it break cleanly. This one stumbles sometimes, you know. And there's ding, ding, and the thing opens up, and the horse breaks clean. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. He sometimes stumbles around the turn. If you could help him around the turn, I need you to help him around the turn. And that horse, you know, went to the inside track, went around the turn. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know. He's coming along. He says, okay, now we got that last turn. He can't stumble there either, Lord. He's, he's ahead. He's really doing great. And so he goes around the final thing, 
hits a home stretch, the guy says, okay, God, I can take it from here. You know? That's what we do. You know, we pray him through the trouble times, but boy, when we, eh, it's okay, God, I can take it from here. I won't bother you again. You can go back to doing whatever else it is you do when you're not answering my prayers of desperation. That's oftentimes what happens, but that's not what's going to happen to Joseph. And when Pharaoh sees Joseph, he sees something different than he saw from his Chaldeans and Babylonians and all these different you know, soothsayers. He sees something special. He turns to everybody standing in the courtroom and says, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? He can see the Holy Spirit resting on Joseph. It's not what he's saying. By the way, Joseph has just told him everything. He, he's, in fact, when Joseph starts telling him, he can't shut up. He starts saying, okay, well, phew, that's not hard to tell you. I'll tell you, both these dreams are the same. You're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. The seven years of famine are going to be so bad, you're going to forget the seven years of plenty. And there's a pause in the room where people are kind of absorbing that. He's like looking around and says, well, you know what you do, right? And so you obviously, and he starts laying out a plan for them. And everybody's like, whoa, you know, we're still trying to digest this disaster news. He's already got a five-point plan on how to fix it, you know? And he says, how can we find a man like this? He's got the divine spirit in him, which is incredible coming from Pharaoh because he thought he was God. Pharaoh was worshipped as God. He was the child of the sun king according to Egyptian beliefs. So he was like God. And he's like, well, no, this guy, he's got the real God. He has divine spirit. And there's no one like him, he says, since God has informed you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. By the way, true story, right? That has to be true. If God is informing your words, there's no one that's going to be wise or discerning as that because God knows everything. And so he says, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. He basically does what Potiphar had done two years before. I'm giving everything to you. I'm going to be an absentee king. I'm going to let you run the show. Officially, you know, he still had the stamp that he could overrule Joseph. But the reality is he knew there's no reason to overrule Joseph because he had an idea and understanding of this that Pharaoh would never going to have. So Joseph is exalted to the most powerful man on earth. And then the plan starts happening. They have seven years of plenty. They have seven, words, se- seven years of bad things, but it doesn't matter. Through all of this, Joseph stayed true to the word of the Lord. He changed nothing. He's the same person now that he was when he was in the pit. When he first realized he had screwed up his life, and he screwed up his life, there's a reason why your brothers throw you in a pit. When he first realized that and he cried out to the Lord, until the time he stands before Pharaoh, he never changed his plan. From now on, I'm going to listen to what God said. From now on, I'm going to be devoted to the word of the Lord. I'm going to follow the word of God. That which I know, I will do. And he does that, and nothing ever changes. If somebody else had been there, they would have been corrupt. He has ultimate power, absolute power. You've heard the expression, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Not with Joseph, it didn't. Because Joseph never took his eye off God. He knew what brought him. He, he knew what brought him here. He wasn't going to start listening to the wisdom of others. You know, hey, Joseph, I want to talk to you about this plan of yours because maybe you don't know how we do things here in Egypt. I don't need to know how you do things in Egypt. I just need to know what the Heavenly Father says. Even Einstein knew this. He says, all I need to know is the mind of God. The rest is just details. So you know, we have this idea that, that we need to know all these things. No, we don't. We need, to know, we need to know someone. It's not what you know. It's who you know. In fact, the people serve Pharaoh, you know, because they trusted him instead of the Lord. He said, I'm not going to fall for that trick. He never put his trust in Pharaoh. Even when Pharaoh was the one who was exalting him and giving him all this stuff, he never, ever, ever put his trust in Pharaoh. He always left his trust in God because that is what worked for him so far. 
And he steps into exactly the same dream that he'd had when he was 17 years old because he was true to the word of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is that eventually this is going to change for everybody. And because what's going to happen is Joseph's going to die. While Joseph's there, they have a spokesperson who knows God, has a relationship with God, keeps his relationship with God, and can speak for God. In fact, Pharaoh is so delighted with Joseph when he saves the nation in the next seven years, he says, hey, don't you have family here? Bring them. Bring them. They'll be our honored guests. We will put them up in the best part of the land. We'll settle them in Goshen, and they'll be left alone where they can just relax, which was a big deal because up until then, they were a tribe. They will eventually come out of Egypt, a nation. But they were there as a tribe, and they were protected by Egypt. They had nothing to worry about anymore. All they had to do was be fruitful and multiply, and they did. You know, they really took that to heart. They were a fruitful, multiplying kind of people. And that's what they did because they were protected. They didn't have to worry about people fighting them or killing them. They were the greatest army on earth was surrounding them. And they just grew inside of Egypt. But here's what happened. They said, well, it's our relationship with Joseph that made all this happen. Joseph knew it was his relationship with God that made it all happen. And you know this because when uh, Joseph's father passes away, all his brothers who sold him to slavery, and Joseph told him he forgave them. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I'm okay with it. You know, I, I didn't like it at the time, but this brought me where I am, and this was good. This was necessary. I understand that it was necessary. And they were like, okay, great. He's not going to kill us, because he could. I mean, it'd be easy. And then when the father dies, they go, okay, now he's going to kill us. And they go back to him and make him, please, please, please promise that you're not going to kill us now. Now the dad's gone. And Joseph looks at him like, what are you talking about? I told you I forgave you. They can't see it. They don't understand it. A lot of times, have you noticed that people accuse you of exactly what they're guilty of? You know, sometimes someone comes up to you and you wonder where that came from. I never did. That's because they do it. You know, they kind of act the way they act. They think you're going to act the way they act. You're going to do what they do. Not Joseph. He's like, no, I forgave you. I forgave you the way God told me to forgive you. I forgave you. But they never got it. It's our relationship with Joseph that gives us this protection from Egypt. And Joseph's, no, it's your relationship with the living God. You're his people. It's Jehovah. It's our relationship with Jehovah. But they never get it. And what happens after Joseph passes away, by the way, it's interesting, I'm, I'm kind of going into all these little details, but before Joseph passes away, did you know all the Israelites left Egypt? When, when their father dies, they all, leave, they all leave Egypt. They go away for three days, they bury him, and they come back. They were free to come and go whenever they wanted. They were honored guests in Egypt. But what happens after Joseph dies is the focus shifted from the living God to the fake God, Pharaoh. Well, you know who gives us his protection is Pharaoh. So we start looking at the world to protect us. We start looking for, you know, a government to protect us. We start looking for the people around us to protect us. And so what happens is they take their eye off God and they put it on the fake God. And we know this because that's how they end up in bondage. This is told to us in Acts during one of the sermons there. Hey, we actually touched Acts for a moment. Um, there arose another king in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage. This can also be, say, tricked. Uh, you, you, you could say like, like, they, like he, he, uh, he pulled the wool over their eyes. He fooled them. That's what this means, to sh- take shrewd advantage over them and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and would not survive. What he's saying is this Pharaoh tricked them into thinking they were slaves when they weren't. And the test of that was he went to kill all the male male children because he was afraid of them. He said, these guys are so strong. They could take over Egypt right now. 
And so he said, well, let's go ahead and let's just kill off the male babies because that keeps them from being as strong down the road. We're going to steal a generation from them. And they were okay with it. They should have picked up and left. Phew, you going to do that? We're out. You don't like us here? We'll leave. They should have been gone. They said, they're not going to let their generation. They, they, they were okay with it. They didn't protest. They didn't riot. They didn't do anything. They go, oh, well, this, this is kind of harsh. Okay, Pharaoh's in charge. At that moment, he knew he had them. And, and when, when Moses comes to take them out, when Moses comes to lead them back out, he actually doesn't ask for them to leave Egypt permanently. He asks them to leave for three days. He says, can, can, can we go for, wait for three days to worship our Lord? And Pharaoh says, no. They've done it before, but not now. What's happened? In the 300 years, 350-so years that have passed, they have taken their eye off of God, and now they trust Pharaoh for everything. Pharaoh is their God. Anything you put before the relationship with God becomes your God. You have to understand that. Anything that you put in front of your relationship with God becomes your God. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, we look at idols and we think, oh, idols are bad. You know, we have idols that aren't bad, right? We can put our country before God. We can put our family before God. We can put our spouse before God. We can put our job before God. There are people not here right now because they put their family, their job, or their whatever before God. It's more important to them right now, their sleep, than God is. is anything coming before your relationship with the Holy God is actually an idol, and you've put your trust in that, not God. That's basically what you're telling them. They're more important to me than you are. And so what happened is the Israelites got tricked. They started thinking God was Pharaoh, and they started serving him. Whatever he says, he may not be just, but at least he's got a powerful army. There's nothing we can do. Of course there's something he could do. I mean, look at what God has done so far for them, but they, they don't see it. So the interesting thing is that the, the, the parallel now between the first person that spoke to God in this little story, Joseph, and Moses. So we see that he was saved at birth, misspelled that, raised as spoiled prince, kind of a little bit like Joseph was, you know. He tries to fix the injustice he sees before him, you know, and uh, that doesn't go well. He ends up getting banished from the court, kind of Joseph was sold into slavery, and he's left in the wilderness, which is kind of where Joseph was when he was in slavery. God will take us to quiet places to get our attention. There's nothing as quiet as a pit, but the next quietest thing I could think of would be the wilderness. He'll take you there because you will be able to hear his voice and know it's his voice because you're surrounded by silence. Silence can be profoundly loud when somebody suddenly speaks. And, and I believe, honestly, that one of the main reasons uh, why God takes us into wilderness is because we have to learn to trust the word of the Lord. And, you know, we talk about the wilderness experience, and Moses and Israelites will, you know, see that literally. But we go through wilderness experiences, too, where things aren't going well in our lives. And things just seem like, oh, I'm not going anywhere. I, 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 I'm pedaling as fast as I can. I'm going nowhere. It's like one of those cartoons from Daffy Duck or something. I can't, I can't go. There's no forward motion. There's no backward motion. I'm kind of stuck here. Uh, but what's happening is God is trying to teach you the word of the Lord is all you need. Once you have that, and Jesus tells you this, everything else will get added, but you've got to start obeying the word of the Lord. The word that you have is what you obey. We have a lot more than Joseph. We're lucky. Joseph had very little, but he obeyed what he had. Whatever you know, do. It's really simple, right? It's hard to do that sometimes, but we have to be obedient to what God reveals. So what he does is he takes him into the wilderness, 
And he teaches them this. Jesus will quote this scripture in the New Testament, but here it is in Deuteronomy 8. So he humbled you. He's talking to the Israelites. He allowed you to hunger and then fed you with manna. You had no idea what it was. No one, no one in your family did. He wanted to let you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is why 400 years of silence is such a big deal. Because the word of the Lord wasn't coming forth anymore. Well, if you haven't been obedient to the word you have, why would God heap more on you? You're not obeying the word you already know. Why would God throw more on you? And, and you, know, you know, some of you who uh, have kids, that this is a tactic we use with our kids sometimes, don't we? Little kids won't shut up. You're trying to talk to them. They won't shut up. What do you do? Just sit there quiet for a moment. After a while, the little kid realizes you're not talking anymore. Well, what, what's going on? Mom, what's going on, Dad? You know? And then, oh, oh, you're listening to me now. You know, I really think that there's sometimes God kind of does that a little bit. It's like, well, I've already given you what to do, and you're not doing it. Why would I heap more on you? Just so you can be more disobedient and, and, and by the way, more condemned? Because we're not obeying that either. But what happened is that the people in, in, in had gotten used to living in Egypt and just rebelling against the word of the Lord. They did whatever they, 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 saw, they, they saw was right. They would have to be taken through the wilderness to understand. In fact, honestly, those people never did understand. They would die in the wilderness, most of them, almost all of them, because they never would get it. They would never get the fact that I need to start listening to the word of the Lord. I need to start obeying the word of the Lord. Here's a Proverbs that oftentimes gets misquoted, Proverbs 29, 18. This is the correct quotation for it. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people are unrestrained. That's what happened in Egypt. There was no prophetic vision. Joseph was gone. There was nobody raised up who was trying to listen to the word of the Lord. And the people were unrestrained. They weren't following any of the commandments. Happy is he who keeps the law. The second part's Joseph. The first part's everybody else. Now, you've probably heard this one misquoted because it's usually quoted this way, where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the old King James translation. It's incorrect. It may have been correct back in the 1600s when it was translated. I don't know. But if you look at the words, this word is prophetic vision from, from the Lord and perishes because they're unrestrained. So what the word is saying here is if you're not hearing a prophetic word, you'll start saying, well, maybe God isn't even real anymore. Maybe I, don't, maybe I don't need to listen to him. I'll just do whatever I want. He says, no, happy is he who keeps the law. That's what made Joseph, Joseph. And that's what, that's what Moses will be taught. Moses is taught when he goes before the Lord, I am God and I'm going to send you the, and you're going to obey me. And Moses says, okay. But he wasn't ready, believe me, when he first got to the wilderness. What we're seeing when we see them speak through the burning bush is 40 years where, where Moses learned, actually by his father-in-law, Jethro, the word of the Lord, and began obeying it. And when his heart was ready, God spoke to him. I think sometimes God doesn't speak because no one's listening. In fact, he says this in Isaiah 55. He's talking about his word going forth like, like the snow or the rain. He says, my word will not go forth from my mouth and return to me empty. When I send it out, it accomplishes what it's meant to do. It doesn't come back to me empty. In other words, God doesn't waste his breath. If he's got a stubborn people who aren't listening to him, why would he add to it by giving them more things not to listen to? A lot of times we're praying to hear God, and I don't know if we really want to. What we want to do is hear God say what we want to hear. It's not the same thing. We're not saying, God, tell me whatever it is, I'll do it. We're saying, God, can you please tell me to do this and then be with me while I do this? We want to do our will in God's name. We oftentimes don't want to do his will. 
it's probably worth asking if you're going through a midst of silence, what have I done? Where have I gone? Have I, have, I, have I done anything? Have I put my trust in anything that's not from the Lord? Am I just being faithful to his word or am I trying to do this on my own and asking God to bless me? God wouldn't bless Ishmael because that was something that Abraham and Sarah did on their own. He blessed Isaac. God blesses what he gives you. And he's still going to bring it to pass. He is not out of time. But we have to understand that a lot of times in our efforts to try to make something happen because we got tired of God, we damage our relationship with the living God. And the one thing that Joseph knew before the silence happened is that that's all that matters. By the way, in the next 400 years, real quick history lesson, what's going to happen is the power of the world shifts from the east to the west. Rome becomes the empire, right? But the Israelites do two things that are unbelievable and they break the covenant. First of all, they put somebody on a throne or allow somebody to put on a throne who's no longer a line of David. Because when David became king, God said he will, his line will always be my king, always. And Herod's whole line is not from David's line. So there's a king put on the throne who has nothing to do with David. And the other thing is he says when he takes him out of Egypt, he says the Levites, the tribe of Levi, which is where Aaron was from, will be my priests. From that moment until sometime between Malachi and Matthew, that was always true. Every priest in the, every priest that, or rabbi in the temple was from the tribe of Levi. But when the lights come up on Matthew 1, we had the Pharisees and Sadducees, neither one of them were from the tribe of Levi. They were pointed positions, they were political positions. That was it. So they no longer had a priest that spoke for God, and they no longer had a king with a heart to God, and the covenant was broken. Good news for us in that terrible day that Malachi talked about because that means the grace of Jesus was coming and was going to be open to all mankind. And we were finally included in the salvation. Bad news for Israel because what they've done is they just simply said, we don't care about any of this anymore. We're giving lip service to it. We're going to make a, we're going to make a game out of religion, which is what they did, which is why Jesus was so mad at the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you've made this whole thing just some kind of little game, reality program on television or something. It's not even real. And so uh, he kind of shook them on that. What are we doing that's damaging our relationship with the living God? Because if we do that, we will be, the response from God will be silence. And when he finally breaks the silence, hopefully it's to tell us that he's coming here to redeem you and bring you back. And it's not that he's coming to you with this terrible thing like Malachi talked about. We need to always be faithful to the word of the Lord. As long as we have the word of the Lord, we will not have silence. Would you all please pray with me?